0: This is in sickness.
1: I'm Angeliki. I'm a doctoral student in history, and I study the history of disease. I'm Maya, and I work in public health in developing areas. Why don't we get started on this brand new episode that
0: we've never recorded?
1: <laughs> <clears throat> it's fine. It's we had a really good rehearsal. Um, We did a great job, we were extremely funny, and now we get to do it again.
0: Today, we are going to talk about HPV, and we're excited about it.
1: We're super excited about it.
0: We love STDs.
1: We do love STDs.
0: Everything about STDs. Although, as you pointed out last time, we don't actually
1: love the STDs themselves. We love sexual health practices. Yeah, Uh, we love the sexual education, we love the screening, (laughs) we love the treatment, We love the socioeconomic impacts. I mean, we don't really love the socioeconomic impacts, but like we love discussing them.
0: Anyway, HPV, this has everything. We're going to touch on so many topics, so many callbacks. It stands for human papillomavirus. And this is very silly, but I've said it out loud like a hundred times because it's such a big thing in public health, but it never really landed that the H stands for human. Like it was just sort of part of the name. Human, obviously, because we are human, the papilloma component of the name comes from a family of viruses called papillomaviridae, and these viruses cause small benign tumors or warts, which are called papillomas. Handy. And this type of virus can infect most mammals and some vertebrates, so that's why we call this specific type human, because it only affects humans. We love a self-explanatory disease title. None of these strange, complex names that I can't pronounce. Perfect. Now, if you were thinking why the word papilloma sounds like papillon, maybe they are so named because their viruses look like little butterflies, (laughs) which is a real conversation that I had with a friend, you would be incorrect And I'm sorry in advance for sharing this information with you, and Angel, I'm sorry that you have to learn this twice.
1: It's just as bad the second time, I assure you.
0: Papilla is Latin for nipple, and Oma is Latin for tumor. So papilloma means a tumor that resembles a nipple. You're welcome. So in short, human papillomavirus is nipple tumors for people. Thank you for coming. This has been In Sickness.
1: The end. We'll see you next time. (laughs) Forget about the history. This is all you need to know.
0: Okay. It's not it. We have so much more to say. HPV is a DNA virus. Other famous DNA viruses that you may have heard of include herpes and smallpox. Some of our faves. A DNA virus basically injects itself into a cell and it tricks the cell into replicating the virus over and over again, which is how you get sick. At this point in time, scientists have identified almost 200 different forms of HPV and counting, which is just so many different strains. The majority of those strains of HPV don't cause any symptoms in a person, and you either get it and you're asymptomatic or your body eradicates it and you just carry on with your life. However, the most common side effects from HPV is warts. Basically, when the immune system stops beating down the virus, the body then starts to have a flare-up, and you develop a various kind of wart. These are often genital. They can also appear on hands or feet, or you can get flat warts, which can appear on the face. And for some reason, in the case of women, on the leg, I don't know why that's gender-specific, but it is. Um, Most types of HPV can cause these general or common warts if your immune system fails to protect you. It's about like 40 types of HPV are genital, um, and many of those cause warts, but they are still considered low-risk. And there are about a dozen forms of HPV that are determined to be high-risk, and those include HPV 16, 18, 31, and 45, which cause cancer. Um, uh, HPV 16 specifically is found in about half of all cervical cancer patients. We'll come back to this, but... There is a form of HPV in essentially every person who has developed cervical cancer and in many people who have developed other forms of cancer. So basically you get HPV and it can be many, many years before you see any of these symptoms, warts or cancer. That's why it's so important to get regularly screened. Basically you can get an HPV screen as a woman. Getting those HPV screens should be paired with regular pap smears, which we will also talk about later. And here is an important sexual health note. If you are over the age of 21, you should be getting a pap every three years, unless the results of your last pap smear were irregular, in which case you will be getting them more regularly as per your doctor's instructions. Once you hit the age of 30, you should also be getting an HPV screen every five years. And obviously these rules only apply to women. And we'll come back to that. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so obviously besides warts, another symptom of getting HPV is cancer. And HPV is the cause of several forms of cancer, the most commonly known form being cervical cancer in women. As I mentioned, essentially all cases of cervical cancer are caused by HPV, and it, that is actually the fourth most common cancer amongst women, and it's pretty much completely preventable. Another frustrating point that you can take a little while to get riled up about, and I will return to... <laughs>
1: So much foreshadowing, you know? I'm really -hmm. really loving this.
0: An important point, though, that, again, this is, like, really, really important, is that it also causes other cancers, including cancer of the mouth and throat, the vagina, the penis, and the anus. So, in short, (laughs) it is not relegated just to women. In fact, in the United States... 70% of head and neck cancers are caused by HPV. 90% of anal cancers are caused by HPV. And that list goes on. So to recap, not just women can get sick from HPV. It also applies to men.
1: Great. Both in the catching of the HPV and in the development from HPV into various deadly cancers. Correct?
0: Exactly. Well (laughs) said fantastic here's the other thing about hpv it is highly contagious and it is the world's most common sexually transmitted disease it is most commonly spread by sexual contact but i just would like to emphasize that it actually can be spread simply through skin-to-skin contact um so that includes like if a mother has hpv and they have a flare-up and they're giving birth they could give it to their baby um you know kissing your friends or your child or whatever, like, it's very, very easily transmitted through skin-to-skin contact. It's so common that something like 80% of all sexually active people will get it at some point in their lives. All this to say, it's incredibly common, and I don't, I mean, I don't really think there's a lot of stigma around HPV. I think there's a lot of stigma around warts, but, you know, obviously there's a lot of missing knowledge in the common consciousness about this that there shouldn't be given how common it is. Okay, anyway, treatments and vaccinations. There is a vaccine for HPV. The vaccine called Gardasil currently protects you against nine of the 200 strains of HPV that are currently recognized. To be fair, that's progress. When Angel and I were of age to receive it, it only covered seven strains. So, you know, we're making moves. And we'll talk more about who gets that vaccine and why in my section. For now, all you need to know is that of the nine that are covered, two are low-risk HPV strains that cause warts, and the other seven are those that are the highest risk for causing cancer. This is important because while there is a preventative measure for some of them, there is no actual cure for HPV. Basically, once you have it, it's in your system and your immune system represses or kills it, or if it's just repressed, you know, if you get really stressed or sick or there are immune system problems, it can flare up and you would get... Warts. You can, of course, catch cancerous cells early through things like regular pap smears. And you can take preventative measures. There are certain treatments for warts, such as creams and lotions and potions and freezing them off, and also lasers. But like I said, for many forms of HPV, once you have it, you have it, and all you're trying to do is stop flare-ups. That's basically it. I, I think when we come back to it, I will have a lot to say. We'll both have a lot to say about, like, the prevention of this disease.
1: I mean, I'm just excited yeah. to tell you about how far we've come in all our treatments <laughs> for HPV. Hit me with it. <laughs> so today in our historical section, we're actually going to start in the 1950s for a change, and then we'll ooh. go back in time ooh, to talk contemporary. about... Contemporary. Yes, contemporary. Um, and then we're going to go back in time to talk about some HPV-related ailments from yesteryear. Yeah, we're going to be touching on a lot of the themes from our previous episodes on hysteria and syphilis with a brief little trip into lead poisoning, just because, and it'll become clear why in just a minute, but just to make it clear, I'm going to be talking mostly about the things that could have been caused by HPV, just the best I can do for the history on this occasion. So mostly um, cervical cancer, various uh, tumors that would have been in the vagina or the uterus. I wanted to get to infertility, but I didn't quite, but it'll be like a mix, a mix of all of these things. So to start us off, I wanted to say that it was only in the 1950s and 1960s that cervical cancer was connected to human papillomavirus. During this time, scientists were researching the causes of cervical cancer, and they decided to do a study which compared the lifestyles of uh, many women who had it. And what they observed is that cervical cancer was actually more common among women who became sexually active earlier in life, or women who had more partners. Uh, And I'm sure Maya's going to have lots to say about that. This is the first time that we're talking about a contagious cancer, but from this point, you've got the observation that uterine cancers are spreading in a pattern similar to STIs. And a virologist called Harold Zurhausen made the connection between genital warts and uterine cancer. Uh, This was working with earlier research from the 1930s on rabbits, which Maya will also talk about later, to identify the virus responsible. And he was working on this into the 1980s. So for our purposes right now, what's important to remember... Um, is that from the historical perspective, we're talking about this wide variety of ailments, um, like I talked about before, including venereal diseases, what they called cancer of the womb, and infertility. Um, Physicians have been observing and attempting to treat complaints of the uterus for millennia. We talked about this in the hysteria episode. Um, Physicians have actually been attributing nearly all of women's health complaints to the uterus (laughs) for the simple reason that women were defined by the reproductive potential. So the question we're actually... Isn't
0: it a- nice to see how far we've gone?
1: <laughs> so the question we're asking today is, what happens when something was actually wrong with a woman's uterus? What could have been the implications of HPV for women's health? So I don't actually have any information about the age of the HPV virus, but I'll try to include that in a post on Instagram. Uh, So if you'll allow me, I will be talking about lesions, tumors, weird treatments, and so on and so forth today. One source raised the excellent point that of all the cancers, uterine cancer, along with breast cancer, was more likely to be recorded as a cause of death among women. So in its early stages, and I quote, cancer of the womb (laughs) could easily be confused with syphilis and other venereal diseases, ulcers, or growths. But the late stage cancer was pretty unmistakable. And these advanced cases of tumors in the uterus were studied since at least antiquity. We have one record of a papyrus from Egypt dating from around 1700 BC, which describes what might be a malignant tumor in the womb. Uh, And then you've got some possible allusions in Hippocrates from the 4th century BC and some Hindu manuscripts from around the same time. Then we hear uh, from the Greek sources about a famous surgeon who specialized in um, the treatment of tumors, but especially in women, uh, who is called uh, Philoxenus of Alexandria, and his date is um, circa 75 BC for this mention. The Roman physician Serranus, whose dates are AD 98 to 138, uses what's called uh, dioptra, and this is an early three-pronged iron speculum. Still don't like it. No, thank you. And then another Roman physician uh, from the 4th century called Orobasius, who prescribes cauterization for the malignant thymus of the womb, which is good to know that our treatments have changed, right? Mm-mm. Cauterization. Oh, Speculum. <laughs> it only gets better. So following on from that, we actually know quite a lot about how and where uh, the classical knowledge was absorbed um, about observable lesions or tumors in the womb. So Uh, medieval europeans copied the texts of someone called adius of amida 502 to 575 ad and this was actually the prevailing knowledge about women's reproductive systems until the renaissance Mm,
0: that's so (laughs) long
1: hold on hold on so literally the book that i used for this section which because i'm quoting it so aggressively i will tell you about right now Uh, It's by someone called Loey, and the book title is A Woman's Disease, The History of Cervical Cancer. So this book says that there are actually no major developments uh, in the field of women's uterine tumors until French physician Ambroise Paré employs a speculum to examine the cervix in the 16th century. (laughs) So long. (laughs) One thousand years. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no developments for 1,000 years.
0: It's like everybody just looked at women and were like, you good? Okay, you're good.
1: Yeah, you're fine. You're totally fine. Now I'm going to move on to some treatments because I know you're excited about these treatments. So in the 17th century, someone called Nicholas Tulpius is credited with the first sur- successful surgical removal of the cervix, um, which on top of being against the original classical advice taken from Adias of Amida, who was actually against surgery, Um, This procedure is rare and considered super, super dangerous. And then in 1762, uh, Jean Astruc publishes the Treatise on the Diseases of Women, and in it he covers pelvic inflammatory disease, and crucially he differentiates between benign and malignant tumors in the womb. But get this, according to him, the best way to tell the difference is to leave the woman alone to see if she (laughs) deteriorates to the point of invalidity, and then you know that the tumor is malignant. Thanks for that.
0: I mean, like, he's right. It's also <laughs> just the worst. Like, yeah, if she gets sicker and dies, it was definitely a malignant tumor.
1: I'm laughing, but, but I'm not amused. It's desperation. It's, <laughs> it's just so sad about it.
0: I'm just gonna laugh through the pain. <gasps> Whew.
1: Uh, so, perhaps luckily, his approach doesn't take off.
0: Shocking.
1: So, physicians do continue to attempt to diagnose and treat women and now for some fun drugs yes so since antiquity drugs are actually being applied internally to uterine lesions uh, hey, but that's I that's another
0: thing i don't like
1: <laughs> no i don't like that at all <laughs> i thought i'd give you some 17th century highlights because i just love that
0: is the 17th century your favorite century do you think
1: I think it's probably my favorite century, yeah.
0: I love that you
1: have a favorite century. With the 16th century being like a close second, it's just everything that happens in the 17th century is completely bananas, and I love it. Especially in the history of science and medicine, I just, yeah, it's fantastic. So in the 17th century, they thought that lesions or cancers were actually caused by a poison created by your body. Um, So they actually tried to counter that with more poison. They would try to apply... Internally, substances such as belladonna, hemlock, strychnine, and mercury, not to mention lead, Uh, nice quote for you, lead-containing ointments were seen as especially efficient treatments of uterine malignancies. And if you listened to our lead poisoning episode, you know that this is extremely bad news.
0: I just don't understand why people were like, oh, you're dying because of poison here's some poison like that it doesn't make sense to me
1: yeah but think about all the other common treatments like i think this might be the first episode in a while where i haven't said oh they prescribed prayer
0: true that is a good point
1: point. and i didn't even have to quote the bible this time around So some some Dutch doctors went in a completely different direction, though, and instead of all of these poisons, they would use, and I quote because it's just too good, rose oil and the juices of pomegranate, leek, and lettuce.
0: Sounds like a smoothie.
1: It does sound like a smoothie, and it also sounds a lot less dangerous than trying to apply mercury internally.
0: Yeah, like it seems like it would kill you less
1: fast. Yeah, juicing.
0: Great.
1: (laughs) Juicing. Early modern juicing. Well, now to, to change gears slightly, but not too much. I wanted to talk about screening. So we're going to talk about the speculum because it's a really interesting technology that was developed pretty much since the time of the Roman Empire to view and diagnose various malignancies and tumors.
0: Do you maybe want to explain to those who may not know what a speculum is?
1: So for those of you who are either under the age of 18, or perhaps, I don't know, male, um, a speculum is a device that is used in pelvic exams. And um, it's a metal device, it is inserted into the vagina, and it sort of like spreads everything out to give the doctor a view of the cervix. And that's what would be used pretty much anytime you have anything done. Insertion of uh, an... IUD, or pap smear, uh, that involves a speculum, so it's a really important tool for uh, gynecological exams. Speculum uh, came up earlier when I was talking about the Romans and their three-pronged iron device, Uh, but let's go into it a little bit more because it's something that pretty much all women over the age of 18 will be familiar with, and it has some fun and weird and upsetting associations.
0: That's like our niche area, fun, weird, and upsetting.
1: (laughs) Yes, the holy trinity. Over the years, physicians continued to tinker with this technology, which I'm pretty thankful for, because the three-prong thing is a bit Mm -mm. alarming, and they were doing this in an effort to improve the capacity of the speculum to allow medical men to observe aberrations or malignancies in the body. The field of gynecology was developing through the 18th century, and this was itself linked to the technology of the speculum, enabling this observation of the of the cervix. Uh, the Scottish pathologist Matthew Bailey was the first to publish images of tumors on the cervix in 1793, and this obviously was done with the help of a speculum. Um, and during this time, new versions are being developed, uh, eventually leading to the invention of the duck billed speculum, uh, which I think was. Uh, created in the 1880s but I'm not sure why I didn't write this down or look it up.
0: It is kind of a bummer though that the last like true development in that area was in like 1880.
1: <laughs> yeah I'm sure they continued to change it a little bit. Yeah but we but still like, essentially use yeah. duck-billed
0: speculation. <laughs> Honestly and
1: like can't they find a less cold instrument like it's kind of counterintuitive like you shouldn't it's not up to me to relax when you are performing your gynecological... Anyway, yeah, I have a whole rant about It's literally never this. been
0: a good time. I mean, I've had no. a plastic one, but it's still not great.
1: It's still gold and horrible. It's just mm, never comfortable. No, we don't like them. Pap smears are still a useful screening tool, tool and you should really get them regularly.
0: <sighs> it's just not a nice day. Carry on. No, it's
1: not a nice day, but cervical cancer would be worse. Yes, 100%. A good point. Thank you very much, Maya. Your support means a lot to me. (laughs) So if you listened to the syphilis episode, you might have already guessed where I'm going with all of this talk of speculum and you might actually recognize uh, the technology from that. So they were used in the 19th century in the frequent inspections of prostitutes or in England, pretty much any woman who the police thought might be a prostitute because she either didn't look respectable enough or well-off enough. So in 1810, Paris police declare that all registered prostitutes would have to undergo internal examinations to screen for venereal disease. And what they did was that if no visible sign of infection was present, uh, the prostitutes were deemed safe and released. And if they had any visible lesions or, I'm sure, tumors, they would be detained, i.e. imprisoned, for treatment. Uh, And they would only be released once they were free from signs of illness. And if you'll recall, this practice was done on women, but not on men. So they were checking the prostitutes, but they were not checking their clients.
0: It's almost as though all the responsibility for sexual health was on the women.
1: Gosh, it's funny how that happens. (laughs) (laughs) More foreshadowing. Stay tuned. And actually, the speculum became associated with... Deviant behavior because of its use in the examination of prostitutes. And it would only be used on quote unquote honest women in extreme cases. So you can see how this is actually pretty pl- problematic because not only are the medical establishment policing venereal disease in an inefficient way, i.e., by screening only women and not their clients and only certain women who didn't look like the ideal of wife and mother, but they're also not screening the wives and mothers that they're supposedly looking out for. Uh, making it a lot harder to diagnose what's going on. On a side note, most women actually would never have been informed about their diagnosis, and instead uh, their husband or some other male relative would be told, and then they would decide what to tell the woman. But that's an aside, and that's something that actually was really common late, like very late. Yeah.
0: We love agency and not having it as women
1: well now we're told our diagnoses which is like a step in the right direction but it's a very yeah. recent step that's been taken
0: I mean still kind of a problem like this is you read so many stories about like HIPAA violations where people are calling up young women's mothers or boyfriends or fathers or whatever and telling them about their health because they think that you know if they're having sex or something that the parents should know
1: it's not a breach of that whole confidentiality HIPAA, thing. yeah if someone
0: does that to you, you should call and report it as a HIPAA violation to their employer, by the way. Everyone.
1: I mean, I it's not called actually, HIPAA everywhere, but... I, I'm i not familiar with... I'm assuming that's an acronym.
0: Yes, sorry. HIPAA mm, Health Information Privacy... Act? Something along those lines. It's, it's the right to have privacy about your own healthcare information.
1: Good to know. I didn't know that was an option to report people for that. Yes.
0: Oh, yes. You... Have the right
1: to all of your own health information. You have the right to choose when you're sharing it. Exactly. Should we work our way back from this massive tangent? A nice little quote from my reading to summarize this for you. Without doubt, many of the gynecological and obstetric practices through 1600 to 2000 were felt by many women to be barbaric invasions of their bodies. And I wrote mood.
0: (laughs) Which it is...
1: (laughs) This developing medical practice enabled society and medicine to pathologize the female body and classify certain aspects of female behavior as troublesome. This medicalization of perceived aberrant conduct, which challenged gender norms, led to a belief that it was necessary to establish moral control over women. So I really like this idea of medicalizing conduct because it includes two facets of Uh, of what we've been talking about that are totally relevant to present-day health concerns. So the first one being that the creation of medical categories to explain behavior kind of allows the establishment to treat deviant behavior and use fear to enforce conformity to whatever social order they like. Um, And the second aspect that I really uh, found interesting and that I'm sure we're going to talk about some more is blame blame for illness, your own illness, or your lifestyle choices, or your, your like moral, your moral capital. And a good example of this is Ada Lovelace, who I wanted to bring up really quickly as an aside. Um, she is the daughter of Lord Byron and famous for seeing the potential in mathematical calculating machines. So computers, she was famously, Learned, uh, participated in academic circles, and also known for her sickly disposition. And throughout her life, she basically harnessed that um, sickly disposition to fuel her work. Like she was constantly pushing back against this idea that women could not handle strong intellectual activity and that it would make them sick. So she was turning that whole thing on its head. And she actually died of cervical cancer. I
0: did not know
1: that. Probably cervical cancer. She she apparently had a tumor of the womb, but the first doctor who, um, who identified that was overruled by the bevy of other doctors who examined her after. She didn't actually have any agency in that decision. It was her husband who decided that the doctors who thought she had some sort of... I don't remember exactly what it was, but they didn't think it was deadly. They thought it was some sort of... Uh, disturbance of her humors and that she would be fine with uh with like some opium treatments and it'll be great but of course ignoring your cancer won't make it go away and it started to spread and she became an invalid and she actually was uh she (laughs) it was kind of interesting because they constructed uh what they called a rubber wheeled chair for her so she was in a wheelchair Uh, and eventually by the end, by the time it was too late, they actually acknowledged that the problem was uh, a tumor, a malignancy in the womb. Yeah. And I think their initial prescription to her actually included, um, banning writing and strenuous intellectual activity because, yeah, because in their minds, a woman could not handle it and it would make her sick if she was engaging in all of this strenuous thought. Great. Um, as did her male colleagues, by the way, they were like, you need to take it easy.
0: We are wildly threatened by you. So if you could stop being smart,
1: maybe your cancer will go away. She's an example of, of the use of fear to enforce conformity and also that blame that I was talking about. So the speculum is kind of a fun rabbit hole. As you can tell, I really enjoyed myself with that, uh, but I wanted to highlight some other important takeaways I had from my research, um, for this episode, So uterine cancer was historically seen as one of the dangers of being a woman. And in particular, those late stage ones were seen as a danger of being a woman. And it's interesting that this overlap already existed with venereal disease, both in the diagnosis of it in the uh, earlier stages and in the treatment. You remember I talked about mercury. That was a really common treatment for syphilis. Uh, And my impression so far has been that um, before it's clear whether you're dealing with late-stage venereal cancer versus late-stage uterine cancer, the distinction in how these women are treated is really all about their social status and whether uh, the woman in question is respectable. So I'm thinking about 17th to 20th century Europe here. Uh, Some other rabbit holes that I wanted to go down but couldn't infertility um there's so much work that's been done on infertility it's really interesting it's um a multidisciplinary subject now there's actually a whole uh palgrave handbook of infertility which is like a collection of essays about it i also love the crazy cures who doesn't i also would have liked to look into female resistance against this mastery of their bodies because it's not a linear narrative like we can tell it as a story of oppression and that is there obviously but it wasn't quite that linear and women were pushing back all the time and it's really important to um, think of this from the medical professional perspective as well. Uh, During the 17th and 18th centuries doctors are sort of consolidating their authority by excluding others and significantly by excluding other women from practicing any sort of medical duties. So for example like midwives are being pushed out and they would not be allowed to use a speculum for example. So uh, the speculum was was designed to examine women but only to be used by men. Don't like that either. A lot of this narrative is about individual doctors trying to one-up each other and make their professional reputation by discovering something new in women and actually part of the uh, examination of prostitutes that I didn't mention earlier is that they were actually using prostitutes as subjects for their own medical research like they were clinical subjects who obviously were not giving consent but uh doctors were doctors were uh furthering their own practices by using prostitutes as clinical subjects and also by examining cadavers and that is how they were furthering their knowledge and making a name for themselves
0: love that parallel between the female body and cadavers.
1: <laughs> the cadaver is also female.
0: Oh, great! So Hopefully. same, same, that's same, perfect. same. Yes. Okay. Cool. That's
1: cool. <laughs> In the twentieth century, once we start talking about HPV and this STI that's causing cancer, we also start talking about blame for lifestyle choices even more so than before. Like this is always a part of the historical narrative. But now there's an even bigger reason to be questioning people about how they're living their lives and potentially stigmatizing them for this super common condition. And that wraps up my historical section. Ooh, that
0: was good. I like the speculum stuff. I feel like that's...
1: I mean, medical technology is so fascinating.
0: It is. And it's almost always got this, like, creepy underbelly that I feel like we really just sort of graze over in the modern day we're like ah this amazing medical invention and then you Mm -hmm. look into it you're like anyway they tested it on people without their consent it was mostly women so interestingly my section from the modern day follows almost exactly in parallel with what you wrote which i think is already very telling before we've even gotten started but we talk about a lot of the same things just in um different contexts which is cool Slash maybe the point of the podcast. (laughs) Okay, I'm going to do a little bit of, like, a timeline to set us up for the modern day. So, starting just, like, in the same place, as Angel mentioned, in the 50s and 60s, there's this guy named Zerhausen, and he was reading all this research about women who had genital warts, and then they were also getting cancer, and he saw similar research that had to do with the relationships between... Mammals, like rabbits, who were getting genital warts and then getting cancer. And so he started digging deeper into this connection. And he started looking for whatever was causing the warts. And he found this new strain of HPV. But in the 1950s, we were only up to HPV 6, keeping in mind that now we're in the 200s somewhere. Anyway, by 1983, like 20 years later, he was just still going on this research. And he had started to identify new forms of HPV as being in some cancer cells. So in women who had cancer, he was seeing those same HPV strains. Several years on, we've gotten all the way up to HPV 18, and he and his team have begun to identify which of those strains are most common in cancerous cells. So within a few few years, this research was the foundation for proving that essentially all cervical cancer was coming from HPV. So... This really laid the groundwork for the fact that not only was it prevention critical, like you could prevent people from getting this kind of cancer, but also that it was possible, and that's a really big deal. And in 2008, he and his team actually won a Nobel Prize for this research. The other side of this, of course, is how did we know how to identify those cancerous cells and find the HPV in them early on in order to prevent it from happening? And the way that we had of doing that is... The pap smear. So, let's do a quick little history of the pap smear, which, by the way, is connected because it is done using the speculum. Pap smear is invented by a Greek doctor named George
1: Papanikolaou. Beautifully done. Yes.
0: (laughs) Amongst other things that Dr. George did in his career, he realized that you could see the difference between malignant and regular cells. Under a microscope. So in subsequent years, basically what Dr. Papa Nicolau would do was he would take uh, develop a method for taking smears from the vagina or the cervix, looking at them underneath a microscope, and from those cells, ascertaining certain things about female menstruation, menstruation, reproduction, and most critically cervical cancer. Now he wasn't the first to ID cancer cells in a microscope. And it's worth noting that there was another Romanian doctor who did a similar smear-type test around the same time using a metal loop, and his name was Dr. Babish. But it is generally agreed that Papa Nicolaou was the first inventor of the version of the pap smear that we use today, and that is why it is called the pap smear after... I mean, I think no one can say Papa Nicolaou, presumably. (laughs) Um, Fun fact, in Romania, out of respect for the Romanian doctor who was doing similar work... It is actually called the Babesh-Papanikolaou test, which just (laughs) rolls off the tongue. Anyway, this test is still the gold gold standard for testing and preventing cervical cancer in women with HPV, and it was invented in the 1920s. However, it did not become widely used until the 1960s because there were some doubts about its efficacy. After the 1960s, it started being implemented more regularly. It's now a major part of women's health, and it has a noticeable impact on cervical cancer prevention. So it's calculated that in areas where it's in regular and appropriate use, it prevents three quarters of all cancer infections, and it can save 5,000 lives a year. So now, in our timeline, our HPV timeline, in the 1960s, we have a good screening system in place for cervical cancer. In the 1980s, the link between certain HPV strains and said cancer has been identified. So what comes next? Well, the answer is in 2007, several decades later, the vaccine Gardasil was approved. So if you're a young woman of about our age, you will probably remember when this was rolled out, if only because it was pretty unpleasant.
1: Yep, that that hurt a lot.
0: It was a painful one. Yeah. Yeah. The first early version... That you know, I talked about this at the top. The first version protected against seven strains of HPV and it rapidly became mandatory for girls. And then uh, very recently it became updated for nine types of HPV. And that is quite a big gap in time that it before it started being rolled out. And so we're only really starting to see its impact on women's health now, although it is proving to be relatively effective. But I want to focus on the vaccine and its regulations for a moment. So, as I said, when this vaccine was first approved for use, they were approved exclusively for use on girls and women. They were supposed to be given to all girls under the age of 11 because you wanted to vaccinate them before they became sexually active to try and prevent dangerous infections. And then, as it was a new rollout, they were also sort of trying to play catch-up, so you could get it up until the age of, like, 26 if you're a woman. And the idea was to sort of achieve herd immunity without vaccinating men.
1: So, you see <laughs> which, the, is not a, which is not a which thing. Which is not
0: a thing. And you see the flaw in the thinking, of course, right? If you don't manage to vaccinate all girls, and you're not trying to vaccinate men at all, then there's, like, about a million ways that Owen could continue to get sick, Plus, it's based in this idea that HPV only negatively affects women, which is just not true. So if you will go back to at the top when we were talking about what happens, what the symptoms are, is you can get warts of genital or other variety, and you can get a variety of different cancers, cervical being the best known, but also vaginal, anal, penile, mouth, throat. Men get those too. By making this vaccine only accessible to women and girls, you're placing all of the impetus on the health care and well being of women and men on women.
1: Yeah, not just for the prevention, mm-hmm. but also for the screening.
0: Yeah. So we will talk about that. (laughs) So it's interesting that this is (laughs) one of the few diseases that we talk about where a lot of the research in preceding years had been done on women. And like, we're always looking for this balance in medicine. There is, just like we've talked a hundred times about the fact that medical research is so biased against women and, you know, it leads to poor health outcomes. So at first you're like, wow, a disease that negatively affects women and the research is being done on women. But it (laughs) it wasn't balanced. Like, first of all, okay... The impetus on vaccination, safe sex, that's all on women. In fact, it's all on girls who are really young. And then second, it ignores the health of men who can also get warts or cancer from HPV. And then on top of that, there's a subgroup of men, men who have sex with men, who are even more vulnerable to this, specifically for anal cancer. So you just have like a little casual homophobia thrown in on top of the sex. Fabulous. It's just bad For everyone. And in the U.S. it wasn't until 2015 or 2016 that the vaccine was actually approved for boys and men as well, which is crazy because we've known that it affects both genders the whole time. And it's just literally better for everyone's health. It has the same positive health impact and reduction in cancer rate in both sexes. So it just makes no sense. (laughs) It's just all based in this idea that there is a dramatic gender imbalance in terms of who is affected by HPV, when in fact it is not an imbalance. Everybody is affected by this. And there are multiple forms of cancer besides cervical cancer that are equally preventable using this vaccine.
1: So we know this, Mm -hmm. but why... (laughs) Why is the medical establishment ignoring the facts on this? Because, like, they have the information. So is this about just, like, an ideology that is affecting the way that doctors are being taught in medical school?
0: I mean, I see a direct reflection from what you were talking about, like who was getting screened, right? Like for, you know, sexually active women who are getting screened for diseases, but their clients who were male were not. And I kind of see this like direct historical transition all the way through to where we are today. We've always talked about it as a disease that affects women. And I think framing it as a good thing, right? Like this disease is affect women. And so we are focusing on treating women for it has changed the way we think about the fact that it's actually placing a negative impetus on women. Mm. Like, I just, I see a direct correlation, and I don't, I I cannot offer you a good explanation as to why they would ignore the fact that this is negatively affecting men. (laughs) I just, I truly do not know.
1: I mean, it, it goes completely on the other end of what we're used to talking about. I mean, if you're a doctor and you have any thoughts about this, we want to hear from you, so please get in touch and tell us why. (laughs) Tell us why. Yeah. I honestly
0: can't. Yeah. The only thing I can think of is just this idea that, like, um, you want to put a lot of the impetus on sexually transmitted diseases and their negative side effects on women. But, like, men are dying. So I don't super, yeah, could not explain that to you. But this is sort of what I touched on earlier about this, like, feminization of a disease, right? Like, I I think a lot of it is attributable to this idea that we're giving, quote-unquote, giving a disease to a certain sex, right? Like, this disease only affects this group of people. And it's something that we've seen before, especially when we've talked about STDs. Once again, we're in a place where it gives women and young girls all of the responsibility for an STD. And it makes us as women responsible for getting screened and tested for cancers that we should have prevented by being safer, right? Places, like you said, a lot of blame. But, like, it it does go deeper than that because it is literally not possible for men to take the impetus on this. There is... It's only just been made accessible to boys and men. It is not a requirement. In many places, it's not free to get this vaccine. So, for example, in Ontario right now, if you're in a 7th grade girl... You are eligible for a free vaccine. You're not if you're a boy. You have to pay for it out of pocket and it's very expensive. And then on top of that, women are getting HPV screens while they also get pap smears regularly. There is no approved HPV screen for men, period. It does not exist.
1: I oh, like that's a massive gap there even just on the detection side because like because because yeah like take me for example let's say I missed my dose of Gardasil when I was in the seventh grade I missed my window and then it was no longer free and maybe somebody couldn't be bothered to actually check up on it and it just never got followed up and then I moved to the UK 2015 and at that point like what if what if I decide to go to school in the UK where you're actually not entitled to a pap smear until you turn 25 so from the ages of like 13 through 25, what if I become sexually active or, like, touch another human being with my hand in the wrong place, play murder handshake, (laughs) get myself some HPV, and then I don't get it detected until I'm either 25 or 26 by the time my symptoms are showing. Yes.
0: It would be very dangerous for you. You also could have gotten many other people sick, and you wouldn't know about it, but you're also hitting... On a really important thing, which is, like, we associate HPV vaccines Mm -hmm. and prevention with this school-age scenario. And so, even right there, we're eliminating access for a bunch of girls already having cut out 50% of the school-age children who are male, right? Like, there are so many points in what you just said where we're missing out. And, like, it's bad public health, especially if you want herd immunity. It just doesn't make any sense, right? Because you know based on those risk factors that you just stated, you're never going to get 100% of girls.
1: Yeah, there are so many ways you can slip through the cracks. And you know what? Even if you do slip through the cracks, and even if it isn't your fault, at the end of the day, they're going to say it's your fault for getting all the other, all these other people sick in the interim. Even though that's a systemic problem. It
0: makes no sense. It's just... Uh... And it's such a bummer because you're in this scenario where, like, wow, they finally did more research on women and women's health, and it's still messed up.
1: (laughs) And, like, the implementation is just not there.
0: It's not there, and what I think is crazy from, like, a patriarchy point of view is that, like, with many, as with, like, many of these inequities, not just in healthcare, something negatively affecting women does, in fact, also negatively affect men. Like, this is always true. People's lives are worse because of these forced inequities. And in this case, it's literally killing people. I knew, for example, I objectively knew, yes, men can get warts. Like, I knew knew that, and I knew it was HPV. And we talk a lot in public health about the HPV vaccine because it's new. It came out in our lifetime, and um, there were a lot of rollouts. And it was focused on women. And there was always this question of like, how can you get 100% of women? And I always, always was frustrated that men were not also getting vaccinated just to protect women. But it was literally never mentioned that it causes cancer in men too. That was just absolutely Mm -hmm. never brought up.
1: No, (laughs) I mean, I I remember the campaign, there was a lot of campaigning about Gardasil when it came out. Without any mention of the implications for men and any sort of acknowledgement of the actual epidemiology of this
0: yeah i mean even if men were not getting sick from it which we know they are if they can pass it to women which we also knew they can they still should have been getting vaccinated it j- there are on top of this like huge gender imbalance other additional imbalances right like there are places where there is less access to other forms of preventative medicine like getting regular pap smears and less access to vaccines for example areas of sub-saharan africa which has some of the highest rates of HPV in the world. And of course, that means that it has some of the highest rates of cervical, penile, anal, and other forms of cancer that are caused by HPV. There are other serious comorbidity factors for that area. For example, Sub-Saharan Africa has really high rates of HIV. HIV hurts your immune system. And if you have a low immune system, then your HPV will be much worse because you are not protected
1: against it. Because I guess now I'm thinking like with with the hiv situation in mind like what would it take for hpv to become enough of a problem that there's a a will to actually do better in the implementation and in achieving hu- herd immunity in making screening more accessible yeah, to, men well to men as
0: well as women i'm so shocked that there isn't like some screening available to men i don't i don't have the answer to that the, there are so many nuances around vaccinations and requiring them these days that that has become such a complex question. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like the first step is making people aware that this is an issue on a lot of levels for a lot of people, But right? There's so many risk factors for this that we don't talk about. And it's so appalling that there are forms of cancer that are preventable and we're just not doing anything about it anyway it's very i find it very frustrating i
1: mean i don't think it's a question we can answer today but it's maybe something we can keep in mind for future episodes and try to draw more comparisons and have more discussions we love a discussion
0: anyway there are a lot of risk factors no matter where you are in the world obviously they're exacerbated by social determinants that we talk about all the time like poverty education race um like we were talking about the school age thing, if you are not in school and you don't have this regular touch point, that's a really big risk factor. Like you might just get overlooked for this critical thing. All of this to say, we are in an HPV pandemic right now amongst all the other ones that we've got on deck, right? Like millions and millions of people actually have this disease. And while many are not super negatively affected or affected at all by it and it might not be life-threatening for you as we have learned what might not hurt you might kill someone else (laughs) so we don't know how these illnesses are having an impact on others clearly there's a gap here and we do have a sense of what herd immunity could do in terms of improving everyone's health and reducing rates of cancer in the world like we can predict it and it would be really great But it requires about 75% of people to be vaccinated by most estimates. So, obviously, we would need to make some serious changes.
1: I mean, the way we're doing it now, it's just never going to be achieved.
0: It's never going to be achieved, and it's not a priority. And that's also really interesting. That's something that was framed as a disease that affects women and women are responsible for was not really made priority level. It's like setting
1: (laughs) them up to fail, almost. Um, (laughs) Clearly, we need to vaccinate
0: boys. We got to get it. All together, it is literally preventable cancer. <laughs> People are dying, and it's crazy. It doesn't make any sense. Let's
1: not Let's not focus on women's health at the expense of men. Absolutely let's not. aim for actual equality.
0: Mm, that's crazy. That's HPV. Um, I feel like I still have a lot of unanswered questions about it that I would keep
1: reading about. As do I, we all, I think. Yeah, I think we probably... Created more questions than we have answered today. Always. Well, I'm kind of okay with that. Me too. Should we wrap it up with some happy thoughts?
0: Yes. Do you have any hoorays on deck?
1: Okay, I have a couple hoorays. So the first one is that it snowed in Oxford, like properly snowed in Oxford for the first time in like two years and I went outside and frolicked in it, and um, there were just people making snowmen everywhere. Like, the whole town has gone bananas, and it was great. It's almost like a carnival atmosphere. It was great. I'm picturing it very Harry
0: Potter-esque.
1: Oh, yeah. And then my other hooray is that the other day I went to check my pigeonhole in college um, to see if I had any mail, and I had an unexpected book in there, and it was a history of Oxford as, like, a belated Christmas gift from the librarians because I work there as a library assistant a few hours a week it was just really sweet they left me a little note saying thank you we really appreciate how willing you were to help out i'm like you pay me but
0: it's still really nice <laughs> i really like that i think that's the sweetest
1: yeah what about you what are your hoorays
0: my hoorays hmm. well okay i have been working
1: congratulations look at you. you you have, you a, job. I have a job
0: a job And it's been keeping me busy, and I am extremely appreciative of that. Love to be busy. And I finished up and sent out all of my graduate school applications, and I've been accepted to a couple additional master's, which feels great. I cannot remember why I thought I wanted another master's, but it is still nice.
1: (laughs) I totally get why you applied to more master's. It was a way to structure your time and a way to plan for a future. And you know what? You are okay. killing it and you should take this as a massive pat on the back for yourself. Okay? All
0: right. You're right. Thank Be you. Be proud
1: of your accomplishments. It doesn't matter if proud. you don't think they're relevant anymore. You're correct. Thank you. Thank you. And that goes for all of you out there. I know you think <laughs> you're not doing well, but you're doing well. So congrats. <laughs> Have a glass of wine.
0: This has been your positive reinforcement for the day
1: well then i'll catch you next time
0: this was lovely still miss you though
1: i miss you too
0: bye everybody bye thank you for listening to in sickness researched and hosted by angelique and maya intro track and logo by adrian morningstar sound editing by maya